to the IMTR Resident Podcast. My name is Chrissy Dolegowski. I am the PGY2 Residency Program Director here at UNC Health in beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I'm really excited to be here today with my resident, Allison. Allison, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, what's up? Hey, everybody. Um, my name is Allison Prom. I am originally from central Minnesota. I did my pharmacy school training at UW-Madison and then completed my um, PGY-1 training here at UNC in the acute care track. And now I'm having a great year doing my PGY-2 in the transplant program here at UNC. Um, Allison, what is it about transplant that really drew you to it? Why, why are you a transplant pharmacist now? There are several different aspects that I really love about transplant, but mostly um, being able to take care of patients at every single point of care within their transplant journey, whether it be taking a look at the critical care aspect of things and then you know, taking care of them during their readmissions and more of an acute inpatient hospitalization standpoint. And then also getting to see them happy and healthy at a, you know, five-year clinic follow-up ideally too. And just kind of being there for them as their medication expert and really getting to be that person connecting with them every step of the way. Yeah. So I know a question that most transplant pharmacists get, especially in training, do you have a favorite organ and why? <laughs> uh, it's really hard for me to pick because I can find really great things that are interesting about all the organs, but I would have to say right now, my favorite organ is the lung. I love their complexity. Um, for me, it's like putting together a huge puzzle where they have some of the most complicated infections I've ever seen. They can have a lot of different complications from the high doses and amounts of immunosuppression that they're on. So I really love just getting this really, really complicated clinical picture coming at me and getting to be a part of those discussions with their whole team and really weighing in with everybody on how to proceed for these people to, you know, really truly make their transplant impactful for them. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I love as an RPD is that each resident kind of gets a unique um, point in time in the transplant course. Some folks have seen new medications come out and other folks um, have seen, you know, pandemics, which I know we've talked a lot about the pandemic throughout the past couple of years, but something that I think is really unique that you've had the chance to see are some of the really big changes with cystic fibrosis care, specifically in lung transplant with the release and the, the approval of um, the, the CFTR modulators. So do you wanna tell us a little bit about cystic fibrosis and the, the background with our modulator therapies? Absolutely, yeah. So cystic fibrosis or CF, as I'll be referring to it, is caused by different mutations in the CFTR gene. Um, this cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductus regular, regulator, which we'll be referring to as the CFTR gene for, um, you know, to save our mouths, basically. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so while there are many, many disease-causing mutations, the Delta F508 is the most common, estimated to affect over 90% of CF patients. CFTR modulators have been a game changer in the last several years in fixing the primary malfunctioning protein product of the CFTR mutation. So not only do they um, increase lung function and reduce pulmonary exacerbations, which is great in terms of quality of life for these patients, but they also improve extrapulmonary components of the disease also, such as weight and nutrition, um, improving chronic sinus disease, cystic fibrosis diabetes, pancreatic insufficiency, and CF-associated liver disease as well. So they've really had benefits all across the board. 
Um, so Trikafta, or generic Alexacafter, Tezacafter, and Ivacafter, is the primary CFTR modulator, which is FDA approved for CF patients with at least one copy of the Delta F508 mutation. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, I know that when this first came out, we, we had a term for this for our post-transplant cystic fibrosis patients, which was trichaftophomo. You know, they see so <laughs> many in their community within the, the CF world that are getting to experience this life-changing drug. Um, so what do we know about lung transplant um, and you know, CF complications. Yeah, so obviously when CF patients are transplanted um, via with lung transplants, they, they receive completely new lungs. So the lung component of their CF disease is essentially cured. However, um, they do continue to experience some of those extra pulmonary effects of CF, including the pancreatic insufficiency, decreased weight and nutrition, and diabetes, which is further exacerbated, of course, by um, calcineurin inhibitors as well, usually and the steroids that they're maintained on too. So there's been some thought that maybe these medications can actually continue to be utilized post-transplant for these extra pulmonary symptoms while potentially simultaneously improving graft function a little bit as well. Absolutely. Um, I know we have some internal experience that we can talk about a little bit later, but has anyone published on what it is that they've done with CFTR modulators, specifically Trikafta in lung transplant recipients? Yep. Um, this fall, um, Benninger and colleagues at the University of Florida actually uh, published a study, a retrospective chart review of nine bilateral lung transplant recipients with homozygous Delphi F508 mutations on Trikafta post-transplant for various indications encompassing poor CF-related diabetes, chronic sinus disease, significant GI manifestations, or the inability to gain weight. Um, they basically looked at um, primary outcomes every three months for one year before initiating Trikafta, and then looked at outcomes throughout the entire duration of Trikafta use after starting therapy, which included white blood cell count, serum glucose, weight and BMI, antibiotic use for different sinus variations and um, hospitalizations as well as GI or sinus surgeries. Um, they also measured, of course, immunosuppression doses and levels because what's a transplant uh, report or study <laughs> that doesn't look at those and report out those. And then additionally, they looked at graft function and acute cellular rejection episodes as well, just um, for completeness sake of long-term patient safety outcomes. Gotcha. So what did their patient population end up looking like? I'm really curious to know, you know, how far out from transplant they were or kind of what other complications they had. Sure. Um, so in general, you know, starting with this total population of nine Bolt recipients, five of them were male, four were female, mean age of 36, um, pretty typical induction with basiliximab and maintenance immunosuppression with tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. Notably, two patients were documented to be on azathioprine and two patients were documented on mTOR inhibitors. Um, and so they had no other CFTR modulator use before or after transplant. And in general, Trikafta was resumed post-transplant roughly uh, 1,385 days or, you know, simpler terms, about four years after their transplant and all were maintained on Trikafta for at least one year. Okay. Which is 
sufficient, I think. Yeah, so I mean, they're all pretty far out from transplant and, you know, of course, like many um, tr lung transplant centers that have a high CF population probably had a handful of folks that once this drug was approved were saying, should we use this or even having patients coming to them asking to be placed on therapy. So what did they find? So basically, in terms of their graft function and immunosuppression results, they found that uh, the mean FEV1% predicted did increase, but was non-significant of an increase from 77 to 81% post-trikafta, and they had no um, episodes of acute cellular rejection. There were also no significant difference in drug levels um, for CNIs or mTORs and no anti-metabolite dose changes were made and white blood cell counts remained stable. So from a, an overall broad picture, immunosuppression was not significantly different throughout this year um, or before or after, um, coupled with you know rejection episodes were obviously minimal as well in a small population. Yeah, and I think that's probably really interesting to me because we know that Trikafta does um, is metabolized through CYP3A4 and has known documented drug interactions with that. So I think I was really surprised to see that there was no difference in drug levels or CNI dosing um, in their report of the, these nine patients. Um, so for at least the, the intended use of Trikafta, um, what did they see for, as far as extrapulmonary effects? Yep, for extrapulmonary effects, they found that mean fasting glucose significantly decreased after Trikafta initiation um, and dropped from 124 to 96 milligrams per deciliter, which was significant at a p-value of less than 0.02 and one of the nine patients was able to actually completely stop insulin therapy after um, utilizing their Trikafta, which I thought was notable. BMI also significantly improved with Trikafta and went up from 21.1 to 23 post um, at a p-value of less than 0.05. And then also eight of these nine patients reported improvement in their sinus symptoms, um, GI symptoms of gastroparesis, fullness, bloating, and reflux improved in all nine patients. There were no notable sinus or GI surgical interventions following Trikafta initiation, and overall, total hospital admissions decreased from 22 to 5 per year after Trikafta initiation. Um, three individuals also utilized a single course of antibiotics after initiating Trikafta. So I think broad picture here, um, seemed to significantly impact blood sugars, BMI, and then um, in terms of our subjective outcomes, it seemed that these patients were feeling a lot better on it too. Yeah, and that was gonna be one of my questions and points to clarify. Did they have objective data about sinus symptoms or reflux or gastroparesis symptoms? Did they have any testing data to, to prove these results or it was all patient reported? Yep, so GI and sinus outcomes were reported as subjective questionnaires that patients filled out in clinic at their follow-up visits every month. So. Personally, I thought that timing of this could potentially implicate their biases towards symptoms as well. And it only captures, you know, one point in time theoretically too, as I've seen patients come into clinic that two days ago were having terrible, terrible symptoms and today they're totally fine. So I think that that is one, um, one of the critiques or points that I would like to see some objective data analyzing some of these outcomes as well. Absolutely. So it sounds like from what you've presented so far and, and how the authors presented the information, this is a, a pretty compelling case, but what are some of the 
limitations that you see in this report um, yeah. that we should take into account? Certainly. So, um, as mentioned, you know, I think the time from transplant was fairly variable, um, where, you know, most of them were roughly four years out on average. Um, only one patient was within that one year transplant time frame. Um, I think that this may have impacted some of their hospitalization rates, especially, um, which is impacted as time from transplant since more readmissions generally occur more in that first year post-transplant. Additionally, this all happened during the, um, the Trikafta data was collected primarily during the COVID-19 pandemic. So biopsies were only conducted in three of these nine patients for symptoms of dyspnea. I know at UNC here too, a lot of our standard biopsy follow-ups were placed on hold and really only conducted for symptoms that were concerning. Um, so, And that may maybe, also have impacted hospitalization data. I know right. many of our patients were doing anything they could to not end up needing uh, a hospitalization and, and really managing a lot of uh, a lot of complications in the ambulatory setting. Absolutely, I totally agree. So I think that that was um, kind of one of the really interesting points, just to see how maybe the COVID nineteen pandemic might have affected some of these outcomes. Absolutely. Um, I also thought that it was interesting that Trikafta was resumed primarily in these patients for sinus GI and weight complications and only one patient resumed it for diabetes complications. So maybe that skewed some of those blood sugar outcomes as well, mm -hmm. seeing as how um, most of these patients might have had fairly well controlled blood sugars. Um, I think finally too, I was also surprised that the immunosuppression levels and doses didn't significantly change with um, the 3A4 and 5 inhibition that uh, Trikafta can, can encompass. But personally, I think overall, I just would have liked to see some side effect outcomes analyzed or mentioned as well in this retrospective review. I think from a drug safety, having a very new medication on the market being utilized in a new population essentially, mm -hmm. it's probably worth um, bringing up um, you know, to, to make sure that we have some of these aspects analyzed for. So some of the side effects that I would monitor in my patients, um, in addition to some of these increased CNI concentrations would be hepatotoxicity or abnormal LFTs, um, making sure that my patients are getting regular eye exams for cataracts, um, also monitoring for headache, upper respiratory tract infections, and stomach pain or diarrhea, which these can also be complicated by CF extrapulmonary symptoms as well. Yeah. So overall, kind of a confusing picture. Absolutely. And you know, the other piece too that I think is really emerging in the cystic fibrosis literature outside of transplant are the impact that some of the CFTR modulators, especially we saw this with some of the earlier generation ones, have on mood and mental health changes. Um, it seems to be that there may be some relationship between worsening of those. It's, of course, a really complicated thing to look at in a retrospective nature. Um, but I will say, at least in our own experience here at UNC, that we've had um, more than three patients actually stop uh, Trikafta that we resumed after transplant um, because of perceived changes with their mood um, and kind of mental status. So I think that's another really um, key thing that will be good to see as we get more experience with it, not only in the CF population, but also in our lung transplant recipients. Um, and of course, you know, we're drawing a lot of conclusions from Nine, Nine patients. patients. <laughs> exactly. That had a lot of different variability yeah. between them too, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> Nine of our patients can look very different here. Exactly. So. 
Um, and I think probably the biggest elephant in the room then are, you know, what are the downsides then? And I think, you know, we always have to consider cost and at almost $200,000 a year or a little bit more, um, how do you think that should play into our decision to think about and talk about Trikafta and lung transplant recipients? Yeah, I think that it's definitely worth having a conversation not only with our patients about this cost, but also with the providers too, and kind of fully taking a look at that risk-benefit analysis of is this um, expensive medication that doesn't have a super clear benefit in an already high cost patient population, is it worth pushing for this medication to be utilized in these patients that are already, you know, incurring high healthcare costs for themselves to pay and also for healthcare systems to also cover? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was having a conversation with one of our pulmonologists the other day, and especially in light of the COVID pandemic, so much of what we talk about and look about and look at in transplant is this hyper individualized approach. And then when you have to think about public health and how do you use a limited resource for a wide population of, of folks, thinking about vaccines or monoclonal antibody therapy, it's very hard for us as transplant providers to do that because we very much want to advocate for the one patient sitting in front of us. And, and I think the use of Trikafta after transplant is another really great example of that because it's this incredibly high cost therapy, but for one patient may significantly affect their quality of life with improvement in sinus symptoms or some of the other um, potential symptom improvement. So taking all of that into account, how do you think that this article and kind of this discussion should affect or does affect practice right now? Yeah, so I definitely think that there is going to be a trend um, towards utilizing more post-transplant trichafta until more robust data becomes available. Given its broad use and efficacy pre-transplant for these CF patients, exactly like you mentioned earlier, I think our patients are going to hear about this and bring it up in conversation at our visits with them too and kind of advocate for trying it out. Personally, in terms of this article, I'm not sure I would put much stake behind it in order to drive my own practice due to the several limitations that we discussed and overall the variability of these patients makes it difficult. I think that if patients are really insistent on trying this medication after failing maybe some more conventional treatments for various extrapulmonary CF outcomes, I would educate them on the lack of data available, ensure they would be comfortable with the cost of the medication, and at that point, you know, getting provider buy-in as well, be okay with potentially prescribing Trikafta for them. And then if after several months, no objective benefits have been seen from a cost perspective, I'd bring up in another conversation about its utility since deprescribing medications um, as pharmacists role too can be just as beneficial for our transplant population as prescribing those necessary medications can be. Yeah, I think that is probably one of the most crucial points is let's, you know, since we have very little data, let's make sure that it's safe for our patients. Let's monitor them closely, but also are they getting that benefit? And, you know, I know early on in our practice when we had patients who were just so, um, so interested in starting Trikafta, you know, we were very mindful about how we prescribed it and, you know, 30 day supplies and no refills on it early on to just make sure that we were really implementing that follow up and not um, and not doing the wrong thing for our patients um, from both a, a health perspective and also from a societal perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, you know, I've mentioned a little bit about my experience with um, Trikafta here. Um, Allison, have you had a chance to see a patient on Trikafta or have an experience that you found particularly valuable? Yeah, I actually had kind of an interesting situation while I was staffing on a weekend um, or an evening a few, you know, a couple of months ago at this point now, but we had a CF patient who was not post-transplant notably. So, you know, yeah. lung transplant had not <laughs> happened or had even been discussed yeah. for him yet. He was admitted for a small bowel obstruction and on trikafta for his CF. I was asked to come verify his home trikafta for use in patients since, you know, it's obviously not on our formulary, but it is one of our other medications that we will allow patients home supply to use. And while I was in his room, his mom asked me a great question that kind of stumped me. You know, my son has been told that he's NPO, can't eat anything. So we're supposed to take this medication with a high fat meal. So what are we supposed to do here? Um, because we're getting conflicting information from both sides. So we also had two opposing teams where general surgery wanted to keep him on a strict NPO diet in the event that they'd need to intervene on his obstruction with an NG tube or a similar intervention while pulmonology team wanted him to continue his CF medication, obviously, yeah. this awesome medication that's been helping his disease state. And I think the other important piece too is, you know, in the non-transplant population, there can be rebound um, pulmonary complications if you stop these CFTR modulators that have even led to hospitalization. So I think there's also that clinical case for that too in the situation. So it's a really tough one. Exactly. Um, so what did you end up doing? Yep, so um, it was a, again, a team you know oriented approach to this issue since we did have multiple different sides and I was kind of in the middle just trying to make sure that we did the right thing by my patient. So overall, we evaluated whether we could use some very small amount of peanut butter with the medication. However, the patient was super allergic to nuts, had a lot of different allergies. <laughs> so that threw an extra complication in there. Um, and as mentioned, high fat foods are required for medication absorption. Its, a and its AUC is actually increased about two to fourfold with a moderate fat meal for an 80% bioavailability. So ultimately we ended up compromising by allowing the patient to have a bite of yogurt <laughs> with his medication. While this likely was not resulting in the best absorption possible for the medication, it was still deemed a better outcome than missing several doses entirely for multiple days. And it was a gentle enough amount of food in his GI system to make, um, to, to not worsen his bowel obstruction. Um, if the surgical team had come to me and were pushing back even harder on his NPO status after, you know, the pulmonology team had said, hey, we should keep him on this, of note, both Alexacaftor and Tezacaftor have 24-hour half-lives. Ivacaftor has about a 15-hour half-life, hence why it's dosed in the evening portion as well as the daytime portion. Um, so he probably would have about two days of missed doses before worrying urgently about subtherapeutic levels of the drug. And as mentioned before, consequences of non-adherence include those increased hospitalizations, longer length of stay for pulmonary exacerbations, and lower baseline lung function. So obviously, you know, we needed to intervene somewhat quickly before he would go, you know, beyond that length of time that I felt comfortable with. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, some of these complications of patients who are readmitted um, is only increasing in the complexity of our care for any patient, including our transplant patients. I think about, you know, the hep C therapies that many pharmacies don't keep on formulary and making sure that patients have good access and administration in situations where they're NPO. 
Um, and I'm just really excited to see what happens with Trikafta and CFTR modulator use after transplant, not only kind of what will our opinion be in five years on its role in therapy, but then also how is the implementation of these therapies really going to affect what transplant and lung transplant looks like in five years, because these folks are gonna be really healthy for a lot longer, which is excellent. That's what we always wanna see. Um, but I definitely think it's gonna change what post-transplant, uh, lung transplant care looks like um, moving forward, especially at centers that had a really high CF volume. Yes, yep, I agree completely. I know UNC has quite a large amount of our population yeah. that is CF patients. Absolutely, so we're gonna be seeing older, other disease states, maybe more COPD kind of comes back around <laughs> yeah. after it was uh, kind of knocked down a little bit in the LAS system, so it will be really interesting to see. Um, it has been so much fun talking about this and one of our favorite topics um, in our lung transplant patients. Thank you all for listening today. Allison, any final words? No, I just hope everybody has a great rest of your day and thanks so much for tuning in. All right, thanks.